Hello and welcome to the RBC Broadview Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoy this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. So welcome if you are um, visiting us or newish today. You've come to the very last week of our series through Exodus, which has been really great. Um, We have been journeying with the Israelites from death to life. And we come to chapter 40, we're going to focus on that and the, the last section of the book today um, to round out this, uh, this uh, journey from death to life. Um, but before we do that, I just want to make mention of, um, I guess, uh, something from my life during the week. Uh, I work with university students uh, in, uh, with a group called Evangelical Students, ES, and that is the context for this little newsletter. We as a church partner with ES and what they do on university campuses And so I just wanted to share some encouraging stories with you. Um, If you get bored during my talk, I know that would never happen, but you could read the stories or read them at home is probably better. But um, uh, you'll see some of the financial needs there. That might be of interest to some of you, but um, more so just wanting to be able to share some of the really great encouraging things that are going on for students at our university campuses. So enjoy that. Um, Let's pray and ask for God's help as we get into today's message. Our Heavenly Father... Uh, we thank you so much for your word and the way that it, uh, it nourishes us, it grows us, it encourages us, it helps us to know you and ourselves better. We pray that you would do all of this work in us this morning. Uh, we also thank you so much for your presence with us. We can take that uh, for granted so easily, but uh, as we're going to see today, we, we thank you for the great lengths that you go in order to be present with your people, how you love to do that and for how great it is uh, when we get to enjoy your closeness and presence with us. Um, So help us to delight in everything we're going to be able to uh, hear about and think about together today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, as I said, we've been working through uh, this uh, book of Exodus over the last few weeks. Uh, If you've been here, or even if you just know the story in outline, perhaps you might know some of the uh, things I'm going to reference here, even if you haven't been with us over the last few weeks. I just want to get you to think in your own mind, what has been the highlight for you? What is your high point in the story of Exodus? I ask that because it is pretty action-packed. If you just think back across the few weeks that we've had, there are lots of good options for a high point. Is it for you, thinking back to week one and the calling of Moses and the bush that doesn't burn up and that whole interaction, the the kind of his move from almost nothing to being right at the forefront of God rescuing and confronting uh, a pharaoh in Egypt, Uh, the initiative of God to work against injustice there? Or is it that confrontation with Pharaoh that has inspired many a drama and musical, uh, Moses saying to Pharaoh, let my people go? Uh, with all the plagues and so on. That's probably mine if I, if I had to uh, tip my hat to it. Uh, is it the escape from slavery in Egypt, where they celebrate that first Passover and then escape uh, going through the Red Sea and, uh, and Pharaoh's army being crushed behind them? Or thinking about it back a few, uh, to a few weeks ago, maybe um, Stephanie helped us to see the beauty of God revealing himself and helping his people to live rightly by giving the law that's a pretty extraordinary moment as well, isn't it? Or 
Would it be last week? Were you amazed at the extravagance of God's promises to his people as he's about to lead them into the promised land? Uh, There are lots of amazing high points in the book of Exodus and obviously some low ones too. Uh, But in terms of high points, I'm going to hazard a guess that the completion of the tabernacle doesn't top anyone's list. Even though it is actually where the whole book has been driving towards, uh, today we are talking about that. We're talking about God taking up residence amongst his people in a special tent called the tabernacle. And I'm going to read to us from Exodus 40. It's the conclusion of that section about building the tabernacle and preparing for its use. And you'll get a sense, I think, as I do that, as to why we might find it hard to really appreciate. It's got lots of building details. And perhaps an architect like Andrew might get into that, but it's not everyone's cup of tea. I realise that. And um, it actually sits... I'm only going to read you chapter 40, but actually sits in the context of many, many chapters giving painstaking detail about how this thing is meant to be constructed, what materials are to be used, what size everything's meant to be. But after I've read, we are going to discover what is so great about this part of the Exodus story together. Okay, so let's hear it together. Uh, I'm going to read from Exodus 40. It'll be on screen. Uh, You can follow along in your uh, Bibles if you would like to as well. But um, I'm just going to read the whole chapter. Then the Lord said to Moses... Set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. Place the ark of the covenant law in it and shield the ark with the curtain. Bring in the table and set out what belongs on it. Then bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. Place the gold altar of incense in front of the ark of the covenant law and put the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. Place the altar of burnt offering in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Set up the courtyard around it and put the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it and all its furnishings and it will be holy. Then anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils Consecrate the altar, and it will be most holy. Anoint the basin and its stand, and consecrate them. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting, and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments, anoint him, and consecrate him, so that he may serve me as priest. Bring his sons, and dress them in tunics. Anoint them, just as you anointed their father, so they may serve me as priests." Their anointing will be to a priesthood that will continue throughout their generations. Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars and set up the posts. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent as the Lord commanded him. He took the tablets of the covenant law and placed them in the ark, attached the poles to the ark and put the atonement cover over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shielded the ark of the covenant law as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtain and set out the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. 
He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord commanded him. Then he put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings as the Lord commanded him. He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the tent entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Hooray! <laughs> then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites... Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Okay, so as you heard, this chapter works in two halves. They're not even halves. Um, it takes a long time to get through all of the setting up of the tabernacle. Everything's sort of done once, and then we finally get there, uh, and then the glory comes. And so I'm going to deal with each of those halves as the, um, in terms of how I'm going to break this talk up. Uh, we're going to talk about the tabernacle and what that's all about, and then we're going to talk about the glory of the Lord and why that's so wonderful. So firstly, the tabernacle, uh, let's think about what this is about. What can we say from what we've just heard? The first thing is that the tabernacle is a place where heaven and earth are going to meet. And there's lots of detail here, but that's the big picture of what's going on. And we see that because this bigger section that chapter 40 belongs to begins with these words. So, uh, zooming back to chapter 25, verse 8, God says, um, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Okay, so the point is not a very fancy shelter. Uh, sanctuary, the point is that God will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then, as we heard in part, what follows is a painstakingly detailed blueprint for how the tabernacle must be constructed. And then a painstakingly detailed account of how the tabernacle then is in fact constructed. But the point of it all is that there will be a permanent but transportable place for God to live with his people. This will be a place where heaven and earth meet and intersect. Eventually, of course, uh, the tabernacle will be replaced by the temple, and then in other ways, as we'll see at the end of our talk. But right now, the Israelites are on a journey and into the promised land, and so a tent or a tabernacle uh, is the way that heaven and earth will meet for now. So this helps us to see a really important aspect of the Christian worldview. We do not think that the material world is all there is. That should be kind of obvious, I think. But we also don't think that the material and spiritual world are completely separate, as though it's either a spiritual thing or a material thing. What we're seeing here is that actually 
It's not heaven up there and us down here, but the two come together and interact in lots of different ways. And in this particular way, God is saying, I'm going to make my place among you. God, who is spirit, will dwell in a very physical and visible way amongst his people. So when we hear about some of those details of how the tabernacle is being constructed uh, with things like blue material embroidered with cherubim, that's what the the, um, covering of the the tabernacle was meant to look like, you can see that that's designed to make you feel as though you've stepped into heaven, into the place of God who's now present on earth in a particular way. But there is more going on here than just God dwelling with his people. That is pretty good. Um, But the bigger picture is that this whole tabernacle arrangement, it's actually meant to be a model and a promise of a new creation, which God is bringing about. So the tabernacle is also the plan and promise of a new creation. That might sound like a bit of a left-field idea. Maybe as I say that, you think, where's that coming from? How can it be a plan and promise of a new creation? Uh, But let me show you where I'm getting that from. Think back to the very start of the Bible and how uh, God um, brings about the creation of the world in the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, we read this. Uh, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. Okay, so with that in mind, that's, that's how the, uh, the original account was given. Now, on this next slide, which I admit, I wish I could find a better visual way to do this, um, but I'm going to put it next to what we read in Exodus 39:32, the lead-in to our chapter, and you'll see many of the same ideas happen again. So let's read uh, this lead in Exodus 39. So all the work on the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was completed. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. Moses inspected or saw the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. So Moses blessed them. Like I said, I wish there was a nicer way to arrange it, but you can see how overlapping those ideas are. There are actually other echoes which are a bit harder to show in a talk like this, so you have to take my word for it in that we can't go through all of the chapters leading up. But in those, you'll find that the instructions for creating the tabernacle, so chapters 25 to 31, um, there are seven times when we read the Lord said to Moses. Uh, It's not too hard to guess as to why that would be matches the seven days where God speaks creation into being. And both the Genesis 1 creation account and the tabernacle instructions end with the description, as we just see here, of of the Sabbath day and rest being the moment at which everything is done and where God blesses and Moses blesses in, in those two accounts. So, very clear links between the Garden of Eden and the end of Exodus. That's not accidental or random. They are there because the tabernacle is part of a bigger story of God dwelling with his people. Just like he did in the Garden of Eden. Here he has made a way to do it with his people as they journey through the desert. The big idea actually is that God is bringing our exodus from him to an end by coming near and dwelling with us. 
The people were sent out of the garden. But here is God bringing our exodus to an end. Creation is in the beginning about God being with people. The new creation that we're seeing a a picture of, a pattern, a promise of in Exodus is about God again being with his people. And amazingly, the tabernacle also functions about a promise of an even greater act of creation, which will be completed when Jesus returns to recreate this earth, to be a place where God and people dwell together completely and perfectly and totally. So if we zoom all the way forward, we've talked about Genesis, now zoom all the way forward to Revelation, the last book in the Bible, and we hear a voice from the throne that says, look, God's dwelling place is now among people and he will dwell with them. In fact, in Revelation, the new creation has no tabernacle, it has no temple, there will be no special sacred place called the Holy of Holies or anything like that. The whole city becomes the most holy place. In the new creation, we don't visit God uh, in the tabernacle like the Israelites did here in Exodus. We inhabit the tabernacle. The whole earth becomes God's place and he is present completely and we dwell with him. So that is how this is a promise of what we still look forward to. Um, Just before we get to the glory of God, I want to note a few ways in which the symbols of the tabernacle and later the temple work. Uh, Because this is a picture of the new creation, but the new creation is not literally a tent full of religious objects. Um, They are symbols telling us what the new creation is like. So just briefly, um, I've put them on screen here, just little line drawings um, that uh, I guess uh, lay out the different things that we just read about in the chapter. So the ark is the thing at the top that has the poles to be carried. It is meant to be like a little throne for God. It reminds us that the new creation is a place where God reigns. The table with the bread of presence, uh, so down the bottom there, uh, shows us that the new creation is a place where God eats with his people. There is relationship and friendship, community. The lampstand shows us that the new creation is a place where we walk in God's light. God's people are guided by him and receive life from him. The law, the scroll there, shows us that the new creation is a place in which creation is reordered. Instead of rebellion and hardness towards God, instead of being turned inward to selfish love of ourselves, the new creation is about love of God and love of neighbour. And the priest shows us that the new creation is a place where people are able to enter into God's presence. Obviously, a particular person in this uh, situation, but you know how the story goes. It it becomes much more than that. Okay, so just um, a a visual way to stop and think about the the meaning and the symbols that are part of this new creation uh, that's going on here and the way it points us forward to uh, the one that still awaits us as well. We'll come back and talk about that. Now, part two of this episode in Exodus 40 is that once the work is completed and inspected, once Moses has done all the setting up and preparation as God commands, uh, once the priests are consecrated and Moses' work was finished, something extraordinary happens. Uh, That is, uh, so we read in uh, verse 34 at the end of chapter 40 there, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so we come to the climax of the book of Exodus. 
Here we discover that the glory of God is in the tabernacle and this is God with his people at last. The cloud, it settles on the tabernacle uh, here and continues with the people as they continue into the promised land. A similar thing happens when Solomon's temple, King Solomon's temple is later completed after Israel, after Israel is settled in the land and it's placed... <clears throat> Uh, replaced by a more permanent structure. Um, and this is fantastic in, that, uh, in the sense that God is now with his people. Uh, the situation of Israel here couldn't be more different than where we began in the Exodus story, uh, where God's people were apparently far from God in Egypt, uh, slaves to King Pharaoh, with no opportunity to, to worship or to serve the true God in the proper way. But now here they are, they're free, uh, they're reborn, they're a nation, a treasure to God, a people with God in their very midst. That's a complete turnaround. However, uh, and you heard a hint of it in how I spoke about the priest just before, there is still one problem. The tabernacle is full of God's glory, which is great, but the tabernacle is not full of one thing. It is not full of people. As we read those last few words, did you see that Moses could not enter once the glory of God came upon the tabernacle? The reason is that God's holiness is still dangerous and Moses is still a sinner like all the rest of us and all the others then as well. This is obviously not the situation that God is ultimately looking for. He wants people specifically the priests to enter into the tabernacle and they have to be prepared in a certain way to do it. There is a select group that can be there, but God's ultimate plan is that all of us would get to enjoy that close relationship with him. The next book of the Bible takes us on the next step of the journey. So in a way, like when we're reading through our Bibles, we read Exodus and then Leviticus, but in a way, the, the break there is artificial. Uh, Leviticus continues on and begins talking about the invitation to approach God and specifically through sacrifice. And so we see the people have gone from the curse of slavery to the greatest blessing of all, enjoying uh, God in his glory, his presence, but also looking forward to him doing something much greater uh, through the sacrifice of Jesus. We know that this experience will be opened to all of us in a way that they didn't get to experience then. The tabernacle, it's a taste of what we will all enjoy in the end. God will be with us, we will be his people, but along the way, between the book of Exodus and the end when Jesus returns, uh, there are two big steps. So, uh, I just want to um, talk about Jesus first, and then us and the church, uh, just to bring these two ideas together, and uh, to bring a sort of summary to our journey through Exodus. So, um, the glory of God, we've talked about the glory of God is in the tabernacle, the next big moment is that the glory of God is in Jesus. Um, so as the story runs towards uh, us and towards the end, uh, the obvious thing we should talk about here is Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we read that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. We've spoken about this a few times through our journey in Exodus. That dwelling among us word in John, 14, uh, John 1.14 is tabernacled amongst us. 
uh, pitched his tent amongst us. It's a deliberate reference back to the Exodus because John wants us to understand that in Jesus, something greater than the tabernacle has arrived, even greater than the temple, in fact. Jesus is now the true place where God meets with humanity. But notice also that John speaks about the glory of God and the extraordinary things. Uh, thing is that when Jesus comes, unlike with the tabernacle, people are not prevented from drawing near. Here we have the glory of God in human flesh and no one has to leave the room when Jesus entered. In fact, people crowd and they come to Jesus and they press into him and experience the glory of God in various ways. Um, There is a sense in which that is because Jesus both reveals and conceals the full glory of God. We do see the glory of God in Jesus and that we see his grace and truth and love and justice and beauty and holiness and so on. But the presence of God in Jesus is experienced in the person of the humble carpenter's son from Galilee. It's both revealed and concealed. But there is one episode in the gospel stories that uh, I guess is just such a great um, illustration of what it is to be in the presence of Jesus' full glory, to see him in all his splendor. It's the moment which we call the transfiguration. You can find it in Luke chapter 9, also in Mark and Matthew's gospels. Uh, Jesus takes Peter, James and John up on a mountain to pray. And according to Luke, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was changed. Jesus' face was changed. His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning and two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. We can see how much this is like the Exodus story. This is just like Moses going up on the mountain and meeting with God. And Moses, one of those who appears, is even speaking with Jesus about his departure, literally his exodus. Peter suggests that they might make three tents for their uh, incredible visitors, three tabernacles, literally, but of course there is no need. Peter's missed the point. There is no tabernacle needed anymore because Jesus, the true tabernacle, is with them. Jesus is the presence and glory of God and the first anticipation of the full and final new creation. The second is us and the church. So we have Jesus, uh, now us and the church. In Ephesians 2.21 we read, in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Paul is saying here that the place where people meet God is no longer a temple or a tent. Our churches are the place where people can meet God. Not in the sense that the church building is a replacement for the temple. It's not actually strictly correct to call church buildings the house of God. Um, I realise sometimes we do just colloquially say that, colloquially say that, but um, strictly church buildings are just glorified rain shelters, which is handy on a day like today, but that's really all they are because the church is the people of God gathered with Christ dwelling in and amongst us by his spirit. We are now the place where people can meet God as we live in the power of the spirit and proclaim the gospel together and live with Jesus as king. The tabernacle used to be the model for the new creation. Now we, excuse me, 
Now, we are that model. We are this church, and other churches like it, are the prototype of the new creation. So with that in mind, think again about the objects that we saw in the tabernacle. Like the ark. We are now the place where God reigns in our lives and in our community. God rules his creation through us. Like the table, God eats with his people in communion, in the communion meal, and invites us to look forward to the great banquet in the new creation. Like the lampstand, we are the place from which the light of the gospel shines. We are a city on a hill, a light that can't be hidden. We are the place where people can find light and life in Jesus. Like the law, we are the place where God's creation is being reordered as we live in obedience to God and love of him and neighbour. And like the priest, we are all welcomed into God's holy presence. We may approach him confidently on the basis of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice in our place. And so God's presence is in us by the Holy Spirit, and that means the end of our exodus from God. It's amazing when you think of who we are in relation to what we see in Exodus. Church can sometimes seem like such an ordinary and unimpressive thing. But the truth is that when we gather and live and proclaim the gospel, God is truly among us. So, as we finish the book of Exodus, we do so with great expectation. God is with us and will be at work among us and through us. The same God who rescued the Israelites has rescued us and is calling others to join in the new creation that he is bringing about. And one day we will all together in the new creation see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Won't that be wonderful? Bring on that day. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your commitment to be in relationship with us, to, to be present with us, that we might know your glory, the blessings that flow from having you uh, dwelling in and among us. Uh, we pray that you would help us to delight uh, in all the ways in which sometimes church does seem so ordinary, but to delight in the way that this is uh, what you've been working on since the very beginning. And for the way that it is a promise and a picture of what is yet still to come in all its fullness. I help us to delight in that and to share the good news and to, to invite others into uh, this uh, amazing um, uh, experience that we get to have of you uh, and, and your glory dwelling in us by your spirit. Please empower us by your spirit uh, to live boldly and um, in ways that honour Jesus and uh, make his name look great to others as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.